Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? Okay. All right, good. Well, you always say that you're uh, honored to introduce our guest, but this time uh, we definitely mean it. Would you please introduce our guest, Alan? Definitely honored and privileged um, that uh, Dr. Aaron David Miller, who is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a former State Department Middle East analyst and a negotiator in Republican and Democratic administrations, is also a CNN Global Affairs analyst and the author most recently of The End of Greatness, Why America Can't Have and Doesn't Want Another Great President. Um, that, and that Dr. Miller can join us today. I have his busy schedule. We're very, very honored. We really appreciate it. How are you, Dr. Miller? We're fine. Uh, I actually don't use the word doctor, though. Uh, uh. Well, um, when I got my PhD in 1977, I attended a conference in L.A., and uh, uh, I was all puffed up, and I, I, <laughs> I, the name on the ticket was Dr. Aaron Miller. You can imagine where this is going. So the plane <laughs> takes off. <laughs> And I'm in well, coach. The 70s, yeah. uh, the, they were called stewardesses then, not flight attendants. So the mm-hmm. stewardess comes back and says, Dr. Miller. And I, of course, perk up. I say, yes, can you come with me? I said, why? I said, there's a guy in first class. We think he's having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I decided at that moment, seriously, that uh, I'm not, I'm proud of my PhD. It's wonderful. But I don't use that. I just don't use that. So you'd prefer we just Aaron is Aaron is fine. Okay, Aaron, it is great. And uh, we invited you today because you are somebody who was in the room for, you know, the most major uh, when America was involved in negotiating between Israelis and Palestinians, you were one of those people across six administrations. So you, I'm sure, knew Saeed Erekat. I saw your, you know, you joined others in that Haaretz. We just wanted to know your thoughts about the loss of the individual and what it means for the region. I mean, I'm not, I'm really not, I guess, I'm not an objective observer on Saab. I know he has his detractors and my, my Twitter feed uh, in response to that uh, statement um, and some of the other stuff I've been saying was pretty, uh, pretty hard. Hmm. Really harsh, uh, unfair comments on Twitter. That's weird. Very, very harsh about Saab. Um, yeah. yeah, right. It's a, it's a, Twitter's a wonderful medium for enlightened, restrained discourse. <laughs> yeah. um, Saab and I were friends. I met him in the early 80s when we were helping uh, then Secretary of State James Baker put together the Madrid Peace Conference. And I developed a personal relationship with Saab. Over the years, he had been in my home in Washington. I had been his in Jericho. His kids, at least two of them, um, went to Seeds of Peace, a uh, conflict resolution coexistence organization that I actually uh, ran for three years. Saab was on the advisory board. Uh, when my daughter Jen was in Israel writing what I still think is the best book for um, introduction to, for young, young Americans uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, he really cared for her and, um, and took care of her. So I had a personal relationship with Saab, but beyond that, I mean, Saab was controversial in many respects. Baker was more than annoyed that at Madrid he he um, adorned his himself with uh, the kafia wrapped around his shoulders, hmm. probably as a, an effort, even though 
uh, Arafat was not there to basically say, you know, don't misunderstand. We are. Um, um, I'm an extension to a certain extent. We're partners. Yeah, me and Arafat. Hello. We may be West Bankers and Gazans, uh, but we we we're uh, we owe the PLO allegiance, and they speak for us. And over the years, Saab has said some, particularly with respect to the media. A lot of things that were, I think, highly exaggerated and extremely passionate and annoyed and angered a lot of people. But I have to say the two points I, I would make about Saab Arakat. Number one is no one on the Palestinian side, without exception, uh, demonstrated more of a commitment to peaceful negotiations and reconciliation with Israel than Saab Arakat. And I, I can't stress this point enough. He really believed in this. It was not a talking point. Mm -hmm. And I think over the years, um, when the rest of us more or less abandoned the notion that a, a two-state a two solution was in the cards anytime soon, Saab continued to hope and maintain his faith in the capacity of negotiations to deliver and I, I remember in 2018 when he had his lung transplant, visiting mm -hmm. him after the after he was released from the hospital, he made an, a, a remarkable recovery. The doctors were stunned that within eight days he was out of the hospital, which was oh, wow. pretty extraordinary. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Saab said to me, "You know what? What kept me alive and what keeps me alive now is that my work is not finished." And you know, it. I found it really quite remarkable that he maintained this faith. That was the first point. The second is he was the only, only Palestinian official negotiator with whom we dealt that um, really did, did his homework. I mean, he mastered these negotiations, his, his fluency in English, his capacity to deal with American idioms, his knowledge of drafting and text. And remember, Samuel... Goldwyn Mayer once said that an oral agreement isn't worth the paper it's written on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you want to get serious about negotiations, at some point, you know, oral understandings don't cut it. Right. You've got a draft. And these texts require enormous skill. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking of Yul Zinger on the Israeli side, uh, who is probably one of the most talented lawyers. Um, that I've ever met and a brilliant negotiator. Um, Y'all had a lot of respect for Saab. And, and I think Saab was the only Palestinian who frankly spent the time mastering the details of these texts. Now, sometimes it was a skill that Saab took to a fault because he was operating within pretty narrow constraints and parameters of his bosses. First, Yasser Arafat, sure. and then Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen. And there were plenty of times when he annoyed us and frustrated us um, because I think it was clear at, at one point that um, during several important moments in negotiations, Saab had the capacity because of his knowledge of the negotiating process and the text to turn Arafat one way or the other. But in the end, he had no independent base of operations um, which is the, the final point I would make about Saab. You know, most of the other PLO officials had credentials that Saab did not have. They were organization mm -hmm. men. 
they were Palestinians who had spent most of their political lives in the diaspora. Some were associated with violence. The security chiefs um, had been to jail, which had is like a certain a amount crime. of credibility. And you know, if you want, this is not a this is not a, a criticism of Palestinian society. It's a, it's a I think it's it's simply a a reality that credibility mm -hmm. comes from. Um, um, the Muna the Munadal, the struggle. And jail time helps mm -hmm. with credibility. Saab had none of that. I mean, he had no he had, he had no access to uh, illicit funds. He was not a man of violence, quite the contrary. He came to have an organizational affiliation. He's now, he was Secretary General of the PLO and a member of the Palestinian Legislative Council. But he had none of the street cred that mm -hmm. his colleagues had. And yet, with degrees from American and British universities and a stint in Anajah as a professor, he managed to, I mean, I, I, in a way, he not to trivialize, but he was, in some respects, the Forrest Gump of the peace <laughs> process. Saab was there for everything. Cut out of a lot when Arafat chose to uh, deploy uh, other Palestinians as as interlocutors, but no one else had this sort of durability and longevity and mastery of the negotiating record as uh, as Saab. So those three points are critical. If there were no Saab Erekat in the in the event Israelis and Palestinians ever get into a negotiation with one or another again, that's serious and real. You're going to have to invent one. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to find a Saab Erekat. And you're concerned that there isn't one on the well, horizon? I, I mean, you know, I think the problem that separates Israelis and Palestinians today is so fundamental. It goes mm -hmm. beyond the level of could you find a talented, you know, Saab ran the negotiation support unit, tremendously talented, younger Palestinian analysts and lawyers who did a lot of the work uh, to support him. Um, no, the problem, the problem between Israelis and Palestinians, I mean, we, we should be so lucky that we would confront mm. the problem uh, yeah. that there's no yeah. Saab Erekat. The problems between Israelis and Palestinians now are much more fundamental. Um, so I, I, I'll miss Saab, I really will, because there's no one else quite like him. Well, honestly, that's why you are How our dream. How do you kind of reconcile? Go ahead, Al. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, how do you reconcile kind of that that perception that a lot of people, certainly in uh, Israel, have of him uh, a very different character than you? Than right. You well, describe? I think two ways. What most people saw of Saab was the public side. His own right. colleagues described him as Mr. CNN, right. and it was not a compliment. <laughs> uh, Arafat deployed him with the media because you needed somebody to be deployed with the media. His colleagues described him sometimes as the American because of his facility with English and his contacts uh, with us. I think people saw a side of Saab Erekat, one side and only one side. And um, that's number one. Number two, look, let's be clear. The fact that he had no independent base of operations outside of Jericho, that he lacked the street cred of a Dahlan or Jibril Rajoub meant that he his room to maneuver 
in the public world of Palestine was very limited. And that meant uh, that he needed to hew very closely, certainly in, in the public's mind and eye, to being a true son of Palestine, which essentially mm -hmm, meant right. uh, embracing the Palestinian narrative right. without departing from it. Um, right. And plus Saab's nature was, you know, there are some people by nature who have demeanors and project a certain steadiness and calmness. That was not Saab. He, Saab was passionate <laughs> to the point of, yeah. of a fault, I think, in, in, in terms of, you know, making friends and influencing people, um, at least in terms on the Israeli side. But you talk to the Israeli negotiators and they will, many of them, will have wonderful stories about their personal relationships with Saab Erika. And I don't know, you know, you know, when you judge people, when you evaluate mm -hmm. them over the course of a lifetime, you, it's the balance that counts. It's not that there wasn't a transgression or a series of mistakes or things that people did. It's whether or not the balance of an individual um, remains true and, and somewhat ennobling in terms of the work that they do and what their values are. Right. So uh, that's the way I remember him. And especially if that someone is your friend, all the more so that you should, you know, view them yeah, unbalanced. And I, that I way. don't think, you know, I remember, uh, you know, we all had relationships with Arafat, which was even more controversial. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I remember when my, I left the negotiations in the uh, fall of 1996, um, because my mom was very ill and mm. close to close to dying. So I went home to be with her and during the Shiva. I remember it was on a Wednesday. Um, my brother said, you better come into the kitchen. There's a phone call for you. So I, mm -hmm. I, I took the phone and it was uh, one of Arafat's aides who said, hold for the chairman. So the next thing I know, I'm grieving. I'm very close to my mom. She's an extraordinary woman. And Arafat's on the phone saying that on behalf of the Palestinian people, I just want you to know, we know we understand your mother was a great woman. We understand the mm. sense of loss. And I just wanted you to know how sorry we are. So I hang up the phone and I'm thinking to myself, well, obviously Saab or some <laughs> one of his Arafat's smart aides said, you know, Aaron's mom died. It would be nice if you gave him a call. Okay, so fine. Nonetheless... Nonetheless, an experience like that during a period mm -hmm. of vulnerability gives you a different image mm -hmm. of someone. Yeah. Doesn't mean that, you know, I refuse to accept the fact that Arafat never gave up, gave up the gun, that he had blood on his hands. Mm -hmm. um, but it makes the situation a lot more complicated. It humanizes. Uh, just another indication when we, during our, uh, we saw we saw Arafat in '94 uh, in in Tunis before Gaza Jericho, and we were sitting around Dennis, um, a few others, Dennis and Ross. it's you know we always there was always a meal involved with Arafat whether it was wherever he was no matter what time of 
night or day it was. This was the first time we actually sat with Arafat. And, you know, he's, he's ladling out the lentil soup personally in, you know, in each of our bowls. Like, and I thought to myself, could I imagine Husni Mubarak, King Hussein, or Hafez Assad doing that? And the answer is no. So you, you get a different image of people. It doesn't cancel out the negatives, right. but it, it right. makes life and people more complicated. Could you do your work that you had to do with them if you didn't have that human side in your experience? Um, I we rash, you know, nobody on nobody in this conflict is objective. There is no gold standard. Mm. We are all products mm. of our experiences, I, I, and I truly believe the best you can do. And you had a lot of Jewish guys, American Jews, working on this peace process for a long mm -hmm. time. Right. Um, the best you can do is make allowances for the prejudgments the prejudices that you have, set them aside and try to the best of your abilities to understand empathetically, not necessarily sympathetically, mm -hmm. but empathetically to understand the needs and requirements of, of the folks with whom you're negotiating. While, while and, and the line between empathy and sympathy, they're quite different terms is is a very fine one i remember when we saw arafat i saw not for the last time with powell and this is in february of um 2001 short colin powell who was the secretary of state at that president bush's yeah and you know we go into the mukata the darkened mukata and all the windows are blacked out and our we go into arafat's conference room it's dark except by candlelight and there's Arafat at the table, you know, with a, with his machine pistol on the table, talking about martyrdom, that he'd rather die in defense of Palestine. So it was at that moment that I began to understand that, um, not that we had misjudged Arafat, but he had he had a limited capacity because I think in the end he never gave up the gun never mm -hmm. gave up the armed struggle. And it became clear to me in that, in that encounter with Powell, Secretary Powell, um, that, you know, th this was more or less over. This was, this was February, early March before, late February, before the Park Hotel terror attack, right. which basically was the trigger that uh, um, prompted the Israelis to launch their a massive uh, not, I guess the Palestinians would say reoccupation of the West Bank, but some of it, um, but more or less, you know, hung a close for the season sign on any prospects of to go back into Janine, to go back into Janine and other cities uh, to exactly. stop the bombing campaign. Right. Well, it's like President Bush really gave up on him after that arms shipment from Iran. Yeah, the Korean A. Um, yeah. That's a whole nother story. Uh, yeah. So, you know, and Karine was just another example of the fact that we could negotiate and pursue the armed struggle at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, at any rate, I, I, I find it, it's it, in many respects fundamentally discouraging to me um, that 
my own views on this have evolved over time. I mean, I, uh, I left government in 03, that's 17 years now. And I've spent the last 17 years primarily in the public conversation, trying mm -hmm. to create a reality-based narrative so that American negotiators, the media, don't fall into the same, uh, don't embrace the same illusions that we embraced, or I won't speak for my colleagues, that I embraced during the years I worked on this issue. And most of my illusions with respect to Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking are gone. What is not gone, and I felt it the other day when um, we were conceptualizing this statement for Saab, is mm -hmm. the hope. The illusions are gone. Um, I think we underestimated the degree of difficulty involved mm -hmm. in in this in this conflict. In you know in. And you're referring now to the American team or to all, well, the American all players? Team. Israelis and Palestinians yeah. have their own illusions. I can, I'm, I'm <laughs> talking about ours. You know, there are six core issues that need to be addressed. Border, security, refugees, Jerusalem, recognition of Israel as the nation state of the Jews, and end of conflict and claims. Mm -hmm. And, right. you know, we're now 20 years plus two months after, three months after the Camp David summit mm -hmm. that I attended. Right. And I, that may have been the last best chance but that was an ill-advised conceived and ill-timed summit hmm. which never had a chance of working in large part i think because we ignored all of the lessons of the first camp david summit the one that actually worked uh and we allowed i think our commitment to seeing the world the way we wanted it to be, to overshadow our understanding of the way the world actually was. And- Or, or, or what you could get it to, to or, the actual yeah, improvements but, you, you could know, make. I think that, that, look, if you only look at the world the way it is, nothing ever changes. Right. But if you only look right. at the world the way you want it to be, you'll fail every time. So it's like everything else. It's finding the balance between right. the way the world is and the way you want it to be. And when American diplomacy actually does work, rarely, <laughs> it, is, it is driven in large part tethered to finding that balance. And unfortunately, we have this, this notion, largely driven, I think, by our, our physical location, that we can fix all these things. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have non-predatory neighbors to our north and south and fish to our <laughs> east and west, right? One historian called our liquid assets. These oceans explain everything that you need to know about, I think, about the why we behave the way we do in the world. It explains our arrogance um, because we have a margin for error that no other country in the world has, given our mm -hmm. physical location. It explains right. our naivete. I think we do not understand... Uh, how the small power actually thinks. And when I say the small power, I mean not just the Israelis and the Palestinians, the Egyptians. I mean powers that are bound and will never escape the ghosts of history and geography. Mm. I mean, the Russians, ever since Peter the Great, had to dominate the space between Berlin and Moscow. That has not changed. And um, China's another example. We've freed ourselves. America has freed itself 
to a large extent from the forces of history and geography. So we don't, we, we relate to small powers with far too much of, of a, uh, a sensibility that, oh, if we could only create, you know, find a way to bridge the differences, we can fix the problems. I had two Israeli prime ministers of very different temperaments. Uh, Rabin on one hand and, and, and Benjamin Netanyahu on the other say almost the exact same thing to me a decade apart. Hmm. You live in Chevy Chase, Maryland. We, we're sitting on top of a volcano. Don't preach to us about our security. And, and I will say that the whole conception of Mars and Venus has become much more relevant in explaining um, the differences between Israel and the United States. We are sitting and living in completely on completely different planets. We have different threat assessments, different perceptions of our security. And rather than ignoring this and expecting that the U.S.-Israeli relationship is going to be harmonized and that and that American and Israeli interests are gonna coincide across the board, that's not the right way to look at it. I think it's frankly miraculous that our interests coincide as much as they do. But we have to be honest about the fact that we don't see the world the same way and we can never see it the same way because of history and geography. I wonder, I wonder how this goes back to sort of what you said earlier about how many American Jews are involved in the this process of trying to bring peace in uh, between Israel and its neighbors. Um, well, I, and I, you know, I would say- Both the, in the current administration before and probably- well, I mean, I have very strong views on this, although when I was working, they were, they were hard. They were not views that I could easily express for obvious <laughs> reasons. I mean, I, I resurrected a phrase out of Kissinger's memoirs for which I am now forever tarred. <laughs> Kissinger used the term Israel's lawyer and I resurrected this phrase for Jim Baker, who, of course, loved it because he's, he kept saying, I'm not going to be Israel's lawyer. Don't make me Israel's lawyer. And the, the reality is we far too often, not during the Bush-Baker years, but during the Clinton years. And I'm not in the government anymore. I left during, you know, three during the Bush administration. But you look at... Mm -hmm. You look at the composition of the American negotiating team now. Yeah. If we were Israel's lawyer, <laughs> we should have been fired. Yeah. Because uh, the team of Kushner, Friedman, uh, Avi Berkowitz, et al., that's a whole nother set of, that's a whole nother yeah. law firm. Mm -hmm. So the idea is not to be Israel's lawyer. Your client is an agreement. You, should you choose to accept this mission, become lawyers for each side. And because I, I would... Mediators. Mediators. There, was, there were no lawyers for the Palestinians for most of the period in which I was involved. And it's not that we ignored Palestinian needs and requirements. I just don't think we treated them with this sort of symmetry that was required. Now, there are all kinds of reasons for that. The special relationship that we have the with the Israel, which exists in a way independently of whether or not there's progress on the peace process or not, is part of that problem. 
the reality that, you know, there is a, a, a very articulate and committed pro-Israeli community in the United States, which has the right and should uh, present Israel's case. And now th that Israel is, is tethered to millions of evangelical Christians, frankly, who are more unified on the question of Israel, clearly, than, the Amer than American Jews are, and are motivated by many different reasons as to why they support mm -hmm. Israel, that weights and slants American policy. But as I, and I've argued with those who argue that, um, you know, the White House is Israeli occupied territory, or the Congress of the United States is the little Knesset. I mean, I react very harshly and negatively to all that, because I know that history, history teaches a different lesson. History teaches that if you have a willful, skillful president, and you want to get something done that you rationalize and convey as in the as in the national interest, it trumps domestic politics every single time. Hmm. And the three most successful American negotiators, Kissinger, Carter, and Jim Baker, are all <clears throat> examples of that fact. You could add Obama mm -hmm. to that too, with respect to the Iran deal, mm -hmm. which again, powerful domestic opposition to that agreement, including a lot of help from the current Israeli prime minister, but an American president arguing the national interest, committed to achieving something, trumps domestic politics every single time. And I get this question all the time. Um, it's, you know, yes, the pro-Israeli constituency in, in the United States is powerful, but it's not all powerful. Mm -hmm. And history, history has a completely different view from those who argue that uh, we're somehow shackled, constrained, and forever indebted to uh, the pro-Israeli community in the United States. And, and as a consequence, um, we, can't, we can't pursue policies that defend the American national interest. We can, but it requires something that that close to treating the U.S.-Israeli relationship as a special relationship rather than the way it, it, it is now, which I would describe it as an exclusive relationship, mm -hmm. where the United States has tethered its interests under this president to uh, domestic politics and political needs uh, and interests rather than the national interest. We've gone a lot over, of American gone Jews. Over, we've gone overboard. It makes a lot of American Jews happy, though certainly uh, in the Orthodox community, and they're you know they're expressing they're they're expressing concerns about losing that sort of exclusive advocate in the White House. What, are, are, I, I assume you don't think they should really be concerned as people who support I, Israel for a change in that approach? Because I don't, you know, an American official should never ever have to apologize. Uh, for the lack of support that the United States government has given to Israel for a variety of different reasons over the years. If you, if you take a look at, and, I'll, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll say it straight out, most of the stuff that Donald Trump has done for Israel 
most of it, not all of it, uh, has been largely rhetorical and symbolic. I call it, uh, and you know, I realize I'm going to annoy a lot of people. I call it a, a lot of it a sugar high. Some of it is quite uh, remarkable. The Abraham Accords, mm -hmm. we can talk about mm -hmm. that in a minute. That's extremely significant and valuable. But a lot of the other stuff, frankly, in my judgment, as important and as popular as it is in among Israelis, you look at this, you know, 45% margin of Trump, uh, pro-Trump, sure. in Israeli public opinion polls. But what people don't somehow grasp is while the sugar high was going on, this president did three things, which, in my judgment, fundamentally threaten and undermine the very integrity of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Number one, he has tried to, to make Israel a partisan issue in American politics. And one of the, other than value affinity, that Israel is the only state nation in that entire region in which there's any coincidence of, of value affinity between the United States and any other nation. It's bipartisanship that is the glue, the adhesive, the, that makes this relationship endure and special. Once, there be, once you have a Republican view of Israel and a Democratic view of Israel, over time, mm -hmm. you can hang a close for the season sign on the, on the special nature of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. And this president has, with a large amount of help of the current Israeli prime minister, has in effect tethered um, the Israel issue to the interests of the Republican Party. That's number one. Number two. When America is strong, competent, wise, when it's respected and admired in the world, I would argue to you, Israel benefits. And I think to a large degree, um, this president has created a situation where, where our credibility, our reputation has been dragged down. And I would argue to you that on a couple issues, it's, it's hurt the Israelis. And I think it's funny because um, I'm writing a piece for the Washington Post and I open up a, with a story of Ben-Gurion's first visit to the United States in May of 61. And Kennedy shocks him by saying, you know, Mr. Prime Minister, I was elected by the Jews of New York. I have to do something for them and I wanna know what I can do for you, for Israel. So Ben-Gurion is not only shocked, he's offended. And you know how he responds? He says, no. Mr. President, do something good for the free world. Mm -hmm. That's how Ben-Gurion responds. Mm -hmm. I think understanding wow. the fact that there's a broader interest at stake here. So that's the second reason. And the third, as an American Jew, I mean, I'm not a religious person, but as an American Jew, somebody with a, a very strong sense of Jewish identity, I do not understand how it is possible for Jews to excuse, apologize, and simply not focus on the climate of prejudice and bigotry that this president has enabled. 
I don't I don't understand. It does it just doesn't compute for me. Um and I you know, I don't it an ADL will tell you, I mean, you look at the stats. Uh the incidence of, of anti-Semitic incidents has gone up 40% since last year. The worst right. act of, of terror and violence perpetuated on American soil against Jews, we just passed the second anniversary. Now, I'm not arguing right. at all that Trump is responsible for that. Right. That's not the causality, right. but it is the enabling, it is the daily, or maybe not every day, it's the constant barrage of insults and polarization and negative comments made, including, I might add, two that he made in, I think, in 2019 during the Ilhan Omar Rashida Tlaib, you know, should they go to Israel controversy, mm-hmm. in which he said, Jews are either unaware or disloyal right. if they support the Democratic Party. So those three reasons, I think, uh, you know, outweigh all of the benefits, not, not, I mean, not outweigh, but they have to be taken into consideration in judging and evaluating the balance sheet. Joe Biden, what's going to happen with Joe Biden, anybody who believes that it's going to be a honeymoon with Biden should lay down, Hmm. wait quietly until the feeling passes. What's going to happen (laughs) with Biden, it's, the relationship is going to revert to the normal, I, mean, I assume you you've met him when he was. I mean, he was in the foreign. I mean, when he was a senator, at least you must have encountered him. You must know him. I testified before his committee. He happened to. <laughs> it's funny because he happened to. My dad, who supported Republicans and Democrats both, because it was in his own business interest to do so, um, mm-hmm. um, was an equal opportunity uh, supporter when it came to the R's and D's. So he struck up. A, um, a a nice relationship with Biden when he was in the Senate. So I testified for the committee and um, I think I was going on a little too long and I finally, <laughs> Biden looked at me and said, you know, you're pretty smart, but you're not half as, sm- this isn't fun, not the full committee, but there were plenty of people. And you're not half as smart as your old man. That's what he said. <laughs> so I don't- That's a great I mean, compliment. It is. Yeah. So Biden, you're going to revert to a more, quote unquote, normal iteration of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. But there isn't, right. there won't be any Charlottesvilles. There isn't going to be any dancing with QAnon and the Proud Boys. There isn't going to be making the Israel issue a campaign issue in right. order to increase the president's share of evangelical vote and Republican conservatives. And there'll be a, a, a competency brought to the issue of foreign policy that will improve, how dramatically, I don't know, will improve America's image and reputation in the world. Those three things are really, really, really important. But there's going to be some TikTok, certainly on the Iran issue, if in fact, Iran is interested in engaging with Biden. But guys, um, uh, Mike and Alan, remember something that's really important. Joe Biden is going to confront the greatest challenge of national recovery of any American president since Franklin Roosevelt, 
without right. the benefit of a war, Second World War, that left America stronger at home and with more influence abroad. Right. It's not going to have the bandwidth to pick mm -hmm. fights with American allies. And if there, if I would argue to you that if it, if the relationship deteriorates, um, it, it will be in part as a consequence of an inability. We'll go back to the Mars and Venus problem. I still think though, um, that Biden is going to be very risk averse and very careful when it comes to both Iran and the other issue, the not ready for prime time Israeli-Palestinian peace process. There is no, there is no margin or merit in an American president creating tensions with Israel for no reason. And right now, since the prospects of an Israeli-Palestinian deal are slim to none, it's hard to imagine um, Biden doing an Obama, which is a mm -hmm. And by the way, he's not Obama. He's Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. Right. Israel is in his deal. How do you mean? Well, because Biden and Clinton have lived with the issue of Israel throughout their entire political careers. Barack Obama was not a politician. Mm -hmm. Being good on Israel not just for political reasons, because Clinton actually was in love with the idea of Israel, and so is Joe Biden. And because of that, you know, so Clinton writes in his memoirs, he loved Rabin as if he had, as mm -hmm. if he loved no man, right? I saw this up close and personal. Biden feels the same way. The two of them are in love with the conception and, and the idea of Israel, and therefore they tend to make allowances for Israel's circumstances so they're not ready and eager to jump on top of the israelis it's just not the way just not the way it works and so, the abraham accords well i think the abraham accord well the abraham accords mm -hmm. in what in what context meaning what, what where's biden going to go with that oh i think i biden. think because you you don't have an, uh, an israeli palestinian issue that's ready for prime time Right. Biden is going to look at the Abraham Accords the way uh, the Clinton administration, after the transition from Bush 41, looked at the Madrid peace process. They had every reason. I mean, why did we Just survive? Just to grab it at the time. We survived a transition from Bush 41 to Clinton that we probably never should have. But they kept us on because they figured these guys had worked on this process. Maybe they know what they're doing and we're going to invest <laughs> in it. And Clinton did invest in it. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think Biden will welcome, welcome this, try to expand it. Now, when it comes to the F-35s, it'll be an interesting, interesting issue because mm -hmm. there are, there are people close to Biden who aren't enamored of arms sales Mm -hmm. um, but the Emirates aren't so isn't Saudi Arabia. That relationship is go, could easily be fray as a consequence of what Biden has said about MBS mm -hmm. and the way Saudis behave. I think the deal will go through. Yeah, I mean, once, once the, the signatures, signatures are on paper, paper is no, that it's going it, to it's going to go through because arms sales are always a part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, weapons <laughs> of war are always a part of peace agreements. 
right. I mean, look at the Camp David entitlement. We're still we're still heavily invested decades after the peace treaty in these relationships with the Egypt and Israel yeah. on the military. It's a good thing that Eisenhower warning about the military industrial process, you know, uh, complex wasn't a big deal. Cause, exactly. yeah. So I, I, again, and I remember meeting with Jared Kushner, he was kind enough to solicit my views, although I'm not sure he was listening in 2017 and 2018. And he made it clear to me that, and these are my words here, that they weren't interested in, the two-state solution. They were much more interested in what I describe as the 22-state solution. Mm -hmm. They wanted to focus on the interstate component of Israel's relations with the Arab world. And they, and to their credit, even though I disagree profoundly, Jamal Khashoggi was a friend of mine. I disagree profoundly uh, and oppose the margin of error that they allowed or the margin they gave to Saudi Arabia to basically do what it wanted in Yemen and and with respect to repression. But they invested heavily in the Saudis in two relationships, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman and MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed, Kushner principally. And, and um, that combined with the willingness to sell F-35s, which the Emirates really wanted because the Israelis have them, and Turkey is involved in the F-35 program. Um, but remember, the bus on that one had already left the station. It was fear of Iran and exhaustion with the Palestinian problem, which years <clears throat> over the last decade had brought the Israelis and the Gulf states much closer together. But again, I don't want to take anything away from them. They, right. That to right. me is the most, that to me is the most significant accomplishment. Right. Mm-hmm. That the that this administration has done. I, I was never. A f- what does it rank up with, in your opinion? I mean, isn't it up there with? Well, in some ways, normalization is a is is a is a remarkable achievement. It is and you know the Israel and the Emirates. What is stunning to me is Israel and the Emirates have already accomplished in terms of normalization. <laughs> Israelis and Jordanians and Israelis yeah. have failed to accomplish. Never. Yeah. Right. But but. You know, not to go overboard on this, as right. important as MBZ may be, um, the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty fundamentally altered the strategic right. balance in the region, right. made a two-front war between Israel and its neighbors virtually impossible. Right. And the Israeli-Jordanian relationship, you know, built on decades, even well before the state of Israel was created, contacts between <clears throat> your early Zionists and and the king's grandfather, you know, made Israel's longest and arguably least defensible border uh, more secure and created, a, you know, a basis for security intelligence cooperation between these two countries. So, um, no, the Abraham Accords are significant. And if, in fact, more Arab states join the party, which, interestingly enough, could create a certain measure of constraint on Israeli actions and behavior toward the Palestinians, because they right. now have something to lose. Right. Um, so, no, I mean, I think that more than anything else the Trump administration has done, in my judgment, uh, will have a meaningful impact, not just on Israel or, or Netanyahu's own political needs and interests, 
but on the broader region. And that's why it's so significant. Well, okay. I, could, I could listen to you. <laughs> I mean, I have. I'd come whenever, yeah. whenever I was in Washington. Well, we'll do, we can do a round two at some point. Yeah. I oh, love, man. I, I love talking great. to you guys. Yeah. Oh, that would be awesome. It was that would great. be awesome. And, uh, and, and really a thrill. And, and I appreciate, look, I, I'll be totally honest with you. As one of those people who encountered Saeed Erekat in the media, and from my perspective, I, I am one of those people. And that's, but that's really why we wanted to talk to you as somebody who knew him, because, you know, that that human perspective and that personal perspective is important. And of course, I mean, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to. I'm, I I never listen to our episodes. I'm gonna have to listen to this one to unpack it because you, yeah. that was that was a lot of perspective. We did yeah, a lot of, I, we went down, good. you know, we were traveling down. Oh the my highway. gosh. We yeah. got off on a lot of different exit ramps. Yeah, yeah were, I think so. Were actually very intriguing and interesting to yeah. me because I, I got, you know, I was able to convey a lot of personal stuff, which makes these podcasts, I think, um, fun. So much, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, think so. so. I think so. So we'll have to maybe figure out a way to keep you. Next time we speak, maybe if we could get on, off the exit ramp and stay. At, I don't know how to do it, how to unpack, because you just have this you know, global perspective on the issues that uh, I find so enlightening. Well, we'll do it. So again. I'm not a very good host. I would just listen. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Mike. And bye-bye.